0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I had a chance to sit down and speak with Chase Devins, a research analyst at Masari. Masari is a provider of cryptocurrency market intelligence products that helps individuals, professionals, and enterprise-grade entities navigate Web3 with confidence. The team seeks to inform investors, regulators, and the public by building data tools to help drive informed decision-making. In this conversation, Chase and I talk about his unique entry into the blockchain space that aligned with the quarantines of spring 2020, his philosophy on garnering the next wave of Web3 businesses, how the ethos of decentralization shapes Misari's principles, the process of creating content and information for Masari clients, the multi-chain thesis, the role that regulations will have in the Web3 space, and potential development trends to keep an eye on. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed on any given episode. With that said... I really enjoyed chatting with Chase, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey guys, what's going on? Dylan with the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we're joined by Chase Devins, a research analyst at Masari. How are you doing today, Chase?
1: Doing great. How are you doing, Dylan?
0: All things considered, with this crazy week, doing pretty well. I think maybe we should just kind of address the elephant in the room, and maybe for future listeners of the podcast, just kind of Mention what happened this week. So uh, maybe from your perspective at Masari, before we even get into the who you are and what Masari is, for future listeners, can you just give like a broad overview of the craziness that we experienced this week?
1: For sure, yeah. So we're recording this on a Friday. I think it was some point last week that you know we we saw the initial CoinDesk piece come out about. Alameda Research's balance sheet and how there was some concern about, you know, a lot of assets that they had on their book being FTT, like the native FTX exchange token, and some other the liquid positions that they had borrowed against, and then it's just been pretty much uh, <laughs> a nonstop timeline since Monday. I think was when kind of CZ Binance started offloading some of the FTT from Binance's books, and you know that. Created a run on on FTX, uh, worries about liquidity and insolvency, just everything over the past the next like forty eight hours. After that, ultimately led to FTX filing for bankruptcy. A lot of stuff coming out on the relationship between Alameda and FTX. Uh, Obviously, Sam Bankman Fried is the pinnacle of all this. He's the poster boy for our industry for the last couple of years, and now he's blown too close to the sun and fallen, just like a lot of other <laughs> crypto leaders in the past. And I mean, the, the craziest thing for me is we're like five days into this and no one still has any concrete idea of what actually happened. It's all just speculative rumors and stuff. So I guess anything that I say on on the topic is just off the basis of the information I have at hand. It's definitely not meant to be like any sort of source of truth by any means.
0: Yeah. And all this information is updating. So new light could be shed a week from now. And also, if you're listening to this a year from now, there could be just a lot more understanding of ties that a lot of 2022s, collapses of centralized entities, and even DeFi protocols like Terra Luna uh, have had. So we really don't know what like the total interconnection looks like right now. But these do kind of seem like a lot of cascading events with the collapse of Terra and then Three Arrows Capital and then Celsius and BlockFi being bought out and then now FTX. So there there just seems to be a strange kind of connection between all these collapses this year.
1: Yeah. And I think we've seen kind of like different cohorts of people get burned on each of the different collapses. I'd say that this one in particular was the one that I saw the most damage in terms of like personal friends that got burned by, by FTX and stuff. I guess in this one case, I'm thankful to be a U.S. citizen under Mr. Gary Gensler's uh, authority, and you know didn't really have access to the wide world of FTX perps and stuff. But yeah, I, I know a lot of people personally are are down bad, and I feel terrible for everyone because I think we've all gone through a similar, not a similar situation, but having had lost some funds and really learning <laughs> what it's like to be in that position.
0: 2022 has been kind of wild. I got into Uh, As a speculator, I got into cryptocurrency in 2017, so I got to ride that fun bear of 2018 and 2019. Um, And it always seems like the lessons of leverage are unlearned every cycle, which is, I don't know if it's endemic to personal psychology, like how humans act, if greed comes into this. I don't know. Do you guys have any insights from just the vast research you do? Do people just kind of like forget about lessons learned in, in past cycles?
1: So, I mean, to preface this, I actually came into crypto in early 2020. So I'm, I'm definitely like a rookie. Uh, it's my first like bull and bear to, to personally live through. But I've definitely studied up on, on the histories of the space. But I'd say that, yeah, obviously, like greed is endemic to human nature. We're never going to escape that, especially in a world of permissionless tools where you can, even if you're blocked from FTX, like you can just go into Arbitrum and get access to like GMX or something. And I mean, if you go over to Gains Network, for example, like their default leverage slider, I think is like 3X and it goes all the way up to like 150X. It's it's kind of insane. I think that this this go around, we've... just seen a lot more access to the tooling like i just said with like these decentralized options come into place and then also the forms of leverage have just become more creative i guess the whole situation we're dealing with with alameda and ftx like no one necessarily knew what was going on there and like everyone wanted a piece of the the luna puzzle is what I'm guessing this kind of stemmed from. And then, you know, that everyone got creative with the types of liquid tokens that they could borrow against to cover up holes or get more exposure and stuff. And I'd say in previous cycles, those options weren't all there. Like you're pretty much only borrowing from like a very small pool of counterparties and stuff. Like the space has developed quite a bit. And it's also part of that development has led to, more opportunities for things to go wrong. And ultimately, yeah, we we definitely need regulation for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, we can, we, we can dive into that a little bit later if you want as well.
0: Yeah, I do. But uh, now that we kind of have that preface for the current situation we're in, um, I want to learn a little bit more about you. You just mentioned that you got into the crypto blockchain space in 2020. So what's kind of like the preface for that? What were you doing before? What piqued your interest in in blockchain, Web3 crypto? And um, how did you decide that this was the field that you wanted to start working in?
1: I was graduating from undergrad in spring of 2020 and COVID started hitting. And the entire job market just rugged. Um, I thought I was going to go into uh, like advertising. I used to run my own videography business in the past and, and was looking at doing something with that in a more like formal capacity. But so yeah, like COVID really just put me in the spot that I had like three months to just pretty much sit inside and, you know, like I'm pretty interested in in tech and stuff. And I just started reading. And I mean, I got to give a shout out to uh, Balaji Srinivasan. I was I had been following him and like his COVID takes the months leading up to COVID. And I was like, oh man, this guy knows something that obviously I don't. He's pretty smart. And so after got stuck in quarantine, started reading a lot more about like what Balji had written about in the past. Crypto <laughs> it was at the top there. And I started to understand crypto from like first principles and like why it was actually valuable. And that is when I had like the light bulb moment of, okay, this is... Has a good shot at being like the second coming of the internet. It's not going to be quick or anything, but you know, it's it's an opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a multi-decade movement. So, in times like right now, where the outlook definitely looks incredibly bleak, it's remembering like the fundamental reasons of why the space exists and trying to go back to the principles of like the Bitcoin white paper and um, like Vitalik creating Ethereum and stuff. And really focus on that again. Um, how did I end up at Masari? I initially worked in just a, a standard tax advisory company doing market intelligence work, spent a lot of time just red pilling the financial team there about crypto, smart contracts, and stuff, and eventually got involved with the Messari Hub program, which was an old program that Masari had for kind of crowdsourcing research and analysis from community contributors get paid on like a bounty one-off basis for completing reports. And, you know, I was able to get my foot in the door there got to work alongside some, some really awesome, smart Masari OGs, like Ryan Watkins, Mason Nystrom, uh, Wilson Withiam. And then when Masari announced their series day, started hiring and was lucky enough to get a full-time position. So I've been here for the last year and four or five months now, and it's definitely been a wild ride to see the company almost like 3x in headcount.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. And I want to dig into Masari a little bit more here in a minute, but I think it's kind of interesting because when I meet a lot of 2020, 2021 market entrants, it's like NFTs that got them into the space or maybe like a meme coin like Doge. So it's really interesting to hear you kind of come to it from a first principles stance. Are you noticing that a lot of your peers who were market entrants around the same time, did they follow a similar path to you? Or did you notice that maybe more of them were kind of getting into the NFT's side of things?
1: Yeah, I think for the majority of people I know that kind of came in during this cycle, like you said, a lot of them are driven either by DeFi, Summer, or that kind of gave him the capital to go explore this area or the NFT craze. But yeah, for me, I had been exposed to crypto before and saw a friend get absolutely blown apart from the 2018 meltdown. And, you know, I just had a completely different view of the space. And so kind of dismissed it as being a giant casino, which I mean, it still is <laughs> a giant casino, but it can actually like, see and speak to the the real benefits of it, of the technology. And so once I had that moment of understanding, things became a lot more clear. Majority of the people that I work with come, came in from first got their exposure in like 2017, 2018, and ultimately ended up making the move coming into this, this previous cycle into crypto full-time. So everyone probably has a little bit more experience than me, a couple more years under their belt. But At the end of the day, it helps to have a variety of perspectives when we're looking at this different stuff as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I just went on a two and a half week university tour where I spoke at eight different universities to blockchain clubs about building careers in web three. So I got to kind of experience like the on-campus kind of vibe for what students are really into right now. And it's a wide variety of things ranging from NFTs to DeFi to first principles. So it's kind of like a plethora of interest points. What was the blockchain club scene like at your university? You went to Wisconsin, correct?
1: Yes. University of Wisconsin. Badger at heart.
0: Was there a club on campus? Were you a part of it? If you weren't, did you hear about it? Were you just not interested? What was it kind of like when when you were a student?
1: Like I said, when, when I was a student... The only real understanding I had of crypto blockchain was just the one friend that had kind of a meltdown. And the presence of any blockchain club and stuff was pretty non-existent on our campus. I guess there was one created in 2017 and then ended up dying out in like 2019. So that would explain why I didn't really hear or see it, see it at all. I mean, I was I was in the business school, so I wasn't really exposed to like the comp sci areas of the world as much either, which is probably where more like 2019 people would have heard about it. But I do know that after I left Wisconsin, this friend of mine actually was able to restart the Badger Blockchain Club is what it's called. And I've spoken to a number of people that had their exposure through that. And now we actually hired one of our engineers on our subgraph team straight from Wisconsin. So it's pretty cool to hear like his development and Two or three years younger than me, and see how the club came back to life. Now, see kind of a relationship starting between Masari and the Badger Blockchain Club. I think we have some speakers lined up there. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to see it uh, revive. And curious if there's, if you saw the similar path with these other schools that you talked to in recent weeks.
0: Yeah. So, almost every club that we visited was fully ongoing, like, They had members. They were hosting events. So I was there on behalf of the Neo blockchain. And so they were bringing in a lot of speakers from our little ecosystem. A thing I noticed that was really interesting is that the clubs weren't necessarily just in CS schools, but they were also in the College of Business, College of Finance, College of Entrepreneurship. So in fact, the majority of them were. And when I was going to these events, maybe 5 to 10% of the students were actually studying CS. So it's kind of a wide interest that's being taken now with students from a variety of different colleges and and these universities, which kind of gets me psyched about the future because we're not just like, you know, expecting developers.
1: It's almost like we've crossed this path of, or chasm of legitimacy, and once you kind of have the... Business creators getting onto these rails and stuff that opens up a whole nother leg of development. I've always said that I think, you know, we need some sort of regulatory clarity to really usher in that next wave, just so people know what the boundaries are and constraints for them to build within. And then, I mean, everything changed like this week in terms of timelines. I think, I think we definitely set ourselves back a a few years at least. And, you know, it's going to be really, really tough to regain that legitimacy. But I'm hopeful that enough people will have at least been exposed to like had the journey that I had and understand like the first principles of this and you know what the actual benefits are we can continue to see at least some sort of iterative development during the upcoming crypto winter.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I've been kind of slamming my fist on the table all year saying we're already in a recession. So, I personally just take the perspective that A we're in a global recession and B we're in we're for sure in a crypto bear market, but what was really positive was that these students were unfazed. So it was the builders that were attending these events and, you know, bear markets are for building. Yep. So it was really refreshing to kind of see this uh, level of activity and engagement from students across the whole U S and we're talking like university of Michigan, UC Berkeley, Stanford, USC, like big name schools that have really active and engaged student populations. So that's, that's cool to hear that a pipeline is kind of developing between Masari and Wisconsin. It's got to feel good. I'm trying to do outreach with colleges and universities here in Colorado as well. So, thanks for sharing that kind of like background. I just want to kind of like paint the picture for what Masari is for folks who are listening right now and might not have ever heard of it, much to my bewilderment. So, could you tell us a little bit about what Masari is? And kind of what's the mission, vision, and purpose of
1: your team? Yeah. So I think before I explain any of that, it's important to call out you know, who's the leader of misari uh, our, our CEO is Ryan Selkis. He's been uh, around crypto for a long time, been through many of these different cycles, but he's a relentless leader, uh, pushes a lot on the regulatory side um, is very involved in in advocating for crypto in Washington stuff. And he's one of those people that he's here for the mission. I know a lot of crypto is just built for seeing number go up and being a business, but I think what really convinced me to join Masari was the fact that Ryan is so mission-driven and you know he really reflects the ethos of the space. So diving a bit more into like what is Masari's mission? You know, we are an organization business that wants to promote transparency and empower smarter crypto decisions. You know, we believe in Crypto being an answer to a censorship resistant and user owned future, you know this can range from anything from financial services, tech infrastructure to an intellectual property, the creator economy. We think those are all mission critical for society at a time when legacy institution trust is just failing. You know we see crypto as an optimistic and contrarian bet on a more open and inclusive future designed around the internet. Um, and we think it returns power to the individuals and opens new markets that previously would have never been been possible in both the analog world and kind of like the Web2 gated internet world that we've created.
0: Before I was in the crypto space, I used to work for various different levels of governments. So uh, at each government I worked at, we had all these branches and departments and divisions. So what are the sort of like branches and departments of Masari?
1: Yeah. So... Organizationally, we're divided into a two-sided business. So the first side we have is kind of focused on crypto protocols themselves. So we call this protocol services. And our goal here is to create um, community financial reporting services. So kind of like outsourced investor relations for these protocols if we're viewing them as businesses for the future. So we really want to standardize and contextualize all of like the protocol specific crypto data, just because you know it's for outsiders, it's so difficult to look at like uniswap versus curve and stuff and try and make any sense of the differences and numbers you're seeing there. So we aim to set standards for that usher in a way for crypto to be credible, trustworthy, and ultimately a, a well-regulated asset class in the future. So our protocol services research team puts out these, these quarterly reports on some of the largest protocols in the space. We're developing a, a protocol metrics service that kind of serves as like gap and IFRS financials. We have our, our governor and intel teams that are Comparative to like corporate actions and events, are really like the building blocks of building a a crypto Edgar database. And all of the the reports on this side are, are distributed widely and freely. Like we have a partnership with Bloomberg that we distribute a lot of the reports through on this side. And then the data sources and Subgraphs that we actually build on top of for these are actually open source and can really power any third party applications that, that might want to build on them as well. The other side of the business then is our market intelligence arm. And so for this, we offer both, we offer two different subscription levels we have a pro and enterprise subscription. And so this is more so just to distinguish between like the average individual crypto investor and then like the large scale businesses that need this kind of service. The subscriptions themselves give users access to different tools, data, and, and analysis that power their customer workflows and ultimately their diligence processes. We have an asset intelligence service that is uh, widely used as a vetting process for exchanges before like throughout their listing workflows and, and diligence processes. As I alluded to before, Intel service is part of uh, product and support workflows and just ongoing network monitoring, you know, like if Infera is going down, we'll be the first to let you know and get any bugs cleared up before they cause too many issues. And then finally, we have our screeners, charting tools, news feed, and research offerings that provide critical analysis for both the average investor and then also funds, institutions, anyone that's looking to uh, learn more about the space.
0: Cool. And can you give a a high level overview of like the types of clients that are subscribing to Masari? Like, is there a a wide difference between the enterprise and pro level? And maybe like, what are some examples of either institutions or types of entities that are subscribing to your services?
1: For sure, I would say the pro level subscription. You know, you get access to some proprietary data, like our our fundraising data. We recently acquired Dove Metrics and included that under the package of Pro. A handful of research every week, probably about like half of what we put out goes out to our Pro subscribers. And then there are just some like other data sets that are available to them. And so... For the pro subscriber, it's generally just like your your average Joe that wants to keep up with, you know, what's going on in the space, doesn't necessarily have the time to scroll on through crypto Twitter, living in Discords and stuff. Overall, just wants to keep a pulse on the space. So our subscription for that is is $30 a month. And we offer a, a free trial for anyone that wants to give it a go. And then for our enterprise package, that's a lot more of just a holistic product suite. All of the products and services, and I guess the, Misari flywheel kind of build on each other and enterprise customers get access to all of that. I think the majority of our enterprise customers come in the form of funds that need access to all the different data sets that we have um, and also want to have like a second set of eyes on like the analysis. And then also another big player is like exchanges. Um, like I said, with their asset diligence process to help them in their exchange listings, workflows, and then also just generally keep up with the events that are happening in the space. Like I said, with our Intel team, you know, customers like Coinbase really need that, and if they're going to patch holes as soon as they come up and, and stay on top of markets.
0: Do you find that uh, maybe some of your enterprise clients kind of shift or guide the direction of the work that you and your team do? Like, are you taking feedback from any of your clients when they say we really want to learn more about? This niche area of this subject matter? Or do you guys kind of operate like autonomously and, and are forward thinking kind of maybe a step ahead of your clients?
1: I think it's a mixture of both. So ultimately, we, we want to be influencing or helping them understand how they should be looking at the space and being on that cutting edge for a lot of things. But also, we obviously value customer feedback. And it's something that the company as a whole has focused a lot more on in, I'd say, like the last year, especially as we've we've scaled up, getting those feedback loops working, happening faster, just being able to iterate on what people actually want to be learning about. So we definitely take a lot of that into consideration. My team specifically, I sit on the enterprise research team. So I'm authoring pro and enterprise reports that sit behind these paywalls for these customers. And, you know, we have like a weekly meeting where our team will just kind of debate like topics that we think our audience and subscribers need to um, hear about, and then also take into account like feedback on what we've heard, like people specifically request. Make sure that's something that's in line with our audience and that we want to ultimately report on.
0: Do you find that you have a direct line of communication with enterprise clients after you release a report or an article? Oftentimes, if I write something and I release it because it's public and out there, anyone can find me on crypto Twitter and kind of ask me about the coverage we just provided. So do you have that sort of similar connection to Masari's clients or are you kind of like siloed or kind of, I don't want to say protected, but kind of like a step removed from communicating directly with somebody?
1: Yeah, I think in the earlier days of Masari, when we were a lot more of a lean team, a lot of those conversations, relationships would just be direct customer to, to analyst. But now, as we've scaled headcount, you know we have people serving those specific roles. So, I mean, for for example, like our our PR lead set up this conversation between the two of us, and so it's it's a lot of those types of things. You know, we'll have someone that says, "Oh, like uh, this customer read your report about X Y Z, and uh, they just want to." ask a few more questions, uh, get your perspective on this and, you know, set up some time to talk with them. But I mean, that doesn't stop us from having conversations and stuff directly. Like if someone reaches out to me on Telegram, like definitely like just alert the team that I'm talking to this person. But yeah, at the end of the day, we want to take in as much customer feedback as possible and ultimately deliver as much value as we can for these customers. So the more conversations, the better.
0: Yeah. And thanks to Mary for hooking this up. I really appreciate it. At the risk of sounding redundant or maybe even asking a dumb question, what sort of research do you guys focus on? There's so much going on in the blockchain Web3 space, even in like sub tranches of DeFi. There are like AMMs and stablecoins and cross chain bridges and all these different facets. So, what does Masari choose to research?
1: Yeah, it's like you said, there's so much going on in the space. I don't I do not think that's a dumb question at all to ask because it's something that we ask ourselves every single week like okay, what should we what do we need to report on right now? Like for the next couple of months I'm guessing it's going to be a lot more focused on kind of like safety and exposure kind of doing some due diligence on what kind of exposure different funds had to specific things in the wake of FTX and Alameda collapsing. But our team is divided up so that like each analyst kind of has their own area of expertise that they came to the team with. And crypto is unique in that all of those can kind of overlap. And it's not like one person is tied to being like the DeFi reporter forever or anything, but we all definitely have our areas of expertise. For me, I primarily more so of like a generalist. I came in learning about DeFi, but, you know, I've written about everything under the sun by now. It's uh, I've covered some NFT stuff, a lot of different layer one staking projects and system designs. I really just like the whole world of like mechanism design. And then like we have other people on our team that are a lot more like data driven and really like to just like dive into all the numbers and explain what that story is telling Everyone has their own strengths and weaknesses, and we try our best to balance all of those out and figure out the best way to both report on the valuable trends and narratives, but also make sure like the right people are covering it. And do you get
0: to pitch your own ideas or is it kind of like a, a voluntold situation where you guys speak every week and then you really want to work on something, but it's obvious that... Something else needs to be written and covered before you get to work on what you want. What's kind of like the delegation process like?
1: Yeah, I mean, as as all of my answers up to this point have been, it's it's a mix of both. There are times when there are very pressing things that need to be covered, like right now, and so we'll we'll dedicate resources to covering the stuff about FTX and Alameda and the dynamics of centralized service providers interacting with like the decentralized economies, but. Otherwise, we tend to kind of come up with ideas in our own different ways. So I won't speak on behalf of everyone else. But for me, like I keep close tabs on crypto Twitter, have a pretty wide network in the space and like to just DM people, telegram and bounce ideas off to them and say like, hey, I'm I'm thinking about writing a piece about XYZ in the future. Like, What are your thoughts on this protocol? Do you think it's worthy to cover and look into more? What do you think that the market is missing right now? It's kind of misunderstood. And then kind of take all of that market research, come back to the group, really formulate like a thesis around a specific idea, say like, I think this should be reported on for these reasons, debate me, <laughs> let's go. And then we just spent a lot of time going back and forth on, okay, like, are we thinking about this the right way? What are the different ways that we need to approach this topic so that we're providing like a well-rounded picture? I think one thing that definitely distinguishes our research is, you know, we try to remain as objective as possible. All of our analysts' um holdings are disclosed on a monthly basis. Those are publicly available. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> accuse Masari of just like writing about our bags and stuff. And it's like, well, if you looked at the <laughs> Documents there, like that just doesn't line up with what's being produced. And a lot of the stuff that I like to write on is stuff that doesn't even have a token. For example, like wrote about I started learning about uh, multi-party computation this summer. I thought it was just a really interesting technology. And the more you look into that, the more you see that it's just been quietly developed over the last few years and is starting to really manifest itself, both in like the private key sharing process and then also for unique. Decentralized protocols uh, like cross chain messaging and stuff. So, roundabout answer to your questions, kind of an all over process.
0: <laughs> yeah, I noticed uh, in a lot of your recent articles, you are talking about interchain communication. So, what is kind of your thesis for the future? I have been saying for years that the future is multi chain, there isn't going to be a winner take all. And I also don't necessarily think like the futures for EVM compatible chains only. Uh, We see Cosmos making a big splash. Obviously, Bitcoin is continuing to thrive. Ethereum's doing its thing. So, what's kind of your outlook on the multi chain
1: future? (laughs) I was was talking to some about this recently. It's like 2021 was the year that we discovered we're living in a multi chain world, 2022 was the year that we learned all the dangers that come with that. Uh, I think it's over like $2 billion worth of bridge exploits and stuff, which is just absurd to think about in quantity. So I think when I approach the cross chain space, uh, it's really important to understand the difference between like, what is ultimately the cross chain problem. And, you know, like from first principles, how do you approach that? Like, number one, you need a messaging system to connect these changes or these chains and all the discussion on bridges that's a whole layer above that sits on top of these messaging rails and i think a lot of people forget that and you know just how we've designed these systems with so much demand to quickly get over to a different chain and farm something in the last 2 years has really led to a lot of weak designs and that's why we have all of the issues we do right now so what really excites me about like the cross chain space right now is that protocols are really thinking from like a first principles basis they're trying to Figure out this way to, for one chain that has no idea what's going on in the state of the world outside of its own like internal system. How can we get that chain to understand that outside world? And so that's that's the same issue as like off chain data and oracles. And obviously, like Chainlink has been spearheading that for a while. Uh, it's definitely the market leader. And all of these cross chain solutions are kind of trying to figure out. how do we design for that same problem? So there's a lot of really interesting, unique approaches. We have Axelar. They're pretty much taking the idea that we just create another chain and instead of having like the the multi-sig securing it, we use multi-party computation and threshold signatures for all the validators to sign off on the state of different chains. So it's kind of just like the next evolution of the multi-sig bridges and communications channels. There is Nomad before they had their bridge hack. Their whole design is around like optimistic assumptions. You kind of introduce this concept of latency so not everything will process immediately. You have like a 30 minute waiting period built into the protocol to allow time for watchers to um, submit like fraud proofs for false like verification of different chains. And I think more recently, what I've been drawn to is coming back to this idea of oracles. And if we're already using oracles to input off-chain data into our DeFi apps, why not just use the same oracles as our cross-chain trust assumptions? Because we're never going to get to a point where you don't have to actually use like some third-party resource. The only way to you know have a cross-chain communication channel without outsourcing some form of trust is if you do the... IBC connection that you see in Cosmos, where you're pretty much running a a validator for the other chain or a light client, and then just kind of like stamping that state into your own state history. And that's just really resource intensive, doesn't work on chains like Ethereum that don't have instant finality. And there are some solutions that are being designed with like ZKs to get around this with kind of like a proof of consensus. I'll, I'll shout out Succinct there. Succinct Labs is a project to look into. But ultimately, like we already have Oracle systems built out and embedded into stuff. So this is the approach that layer zero takes. And you know, you kind of choose your trust assumptions on a per transaction basis. You can choose which Oracle you're going to go through. They rely heavily on Chainlink right now. And that also brings Chainlink into the space of possible competitors. They've been talking about doing this chainlink cross chain link cross-chain interoperability protocol ccip for at least over a year now not too many details on what it will actually be and when it will actually come out but it's the whole same idea that you can just use oracles as a as a way to bridge communications off or across chains as well
0: and you're talking a lot about communicating state changes between chains So this is a little bit more of a simplistic kind of perspective, but something that I've really appreciated in a project is actually ThorChain allowing L1 to L1 atomic swaps. And that is just like simply moving assets between different chains, utilizing Rune and the ThorChain network. But it seems to me that that's an L1 to L1 communication that removes oracles and bridging. So is... The topic of being able to just share state changes too complex for something as simple as swapping tokens between chains via something like ThorChain, is that just too simplistic to expect that L1 to L1 communication can be beyond just like swapping
1: assets? Yeah, I think from the perspective I take is I look at it from like the application perspective of all these things wind to exists across chains. The Thorchain one is definitely an example that could work in the future, like you said, for an asset-based system. The issue I I see with Thorchain is it's really capital inefficient. You have to, if you want the total amount of value that's or liquidity in like the the pools there to increase, you have to have like a factor of like 1.5 times the amount of, of value that's in the pool actually be bonded to the pools themselves in the form of Rune. So I think that could definitely stick around as a more niche service offering for chains that want to connect on in like a cross-chain basis at like the L1 level. But for the applications themselves that want to scale to millions and millions of users, like I think they need just a little more flexibility in how they're designed and stuff and who they can actually reach and not really have those types of limits put on them like I said, with like the capital inefficiency.
0: Yeah, really cool insight. There's a quote out there that there are decades where nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen. And that is happening right now with the FTX collapse. But before FTX, there was this ongoing narrative about what is going to be happening in the regulatory landscape. And so what we're kind of, and I know that uh, Ryan has been very involved in D.C. when it comes to legislation and regulatory issues of that matter. So internally, what were you guys kind of talking about, like the recent DC CPA And how do these kind of uncertain and maybe even potentially harmful regulations impact the kind of vision that you and your team have at Masari?
1: Yeah, um, I think... Internally, we were all just, you know, trying to keep up with everything that was going on. SBF was really like the only one trying to like push something forward in DC. So I'm pretty sure most people saw the Voorhees SBF debate that went on, and you know, I kind of summarized it as SBF wanted to figure out a way for us to kind of like strategically meet in the middle and negotiate with Washington, whereas Voorhees wanted to stake his flag in the ground and say like this is what we believe in. We're not compromising on these principles. And I think I think there's value to both approaches. Now seeing what's happened in the last week, we we don't know exactly what SBF's original or underlying intentions actually were. But I, I think for the most part everyone that I I speak to at Masari is pretty much on board with, you know, like yes, we need regulations for like these exchanges and stuff. Like the centralized entities are the ones that continually cause problems here. Let's regulate that. And I definitely subscribe to what Voorhees said about like with DeFi protocols, the code is the regulator there. We don't need human oversight into Uniswap really when that should more so be concentrated around like the centralized exchanges instead. So I know that Selkis has been fighting very hard to distinguish DeFi from the rest of like centralized crypto making sure that we don't create legislation that's going to set us back by years I mean, in terms of development and experiments that can take place cuz ultimately like it just takes forever to unwind
0: how does that just like impact the vision that you guys have and and I kind of want to add on to that as well because sam was In DC, and he was supposed to be the guy fighting for us. And up until last week, up until the Voorhees debate, you know, I was kind of like, well, this is good. This is our crypto billionaire. He's like speaking on behalf of us. And the narrative was that we have a good actor on our side going into DC and talking. But then the reality shook out that this guy's running an insolvent exchange. We don't know how his books are managed. There's all sorts of weird information coming out about how it was actually ran and who was and how many people had their thumbs on on the scale. so when we're supposed to have this narrative and we kind of buy into it, but then it's shaken really quickly and kind of jarring, really. I mean, like I have done a complete one eighty on what I thought s b f was doing and the role that he was having in d c and now I think it might have been malicious or bad or not in good faith or not positive for retail users how does this kind of like broader 180 like flip on a switch from a narrative perspective impact your team really
1: yeah so <laughs> i'll try to keep any like personal takes about or speculation about spf and like his motives out of this focusing on on our team specifically um like I said earlier in the podcast, like this creates a demand for transparency above all. You know, we need standards for crypto. You can't just look at a blockchain and expect a human to read it. You need someone to contextualize that, put the information together in a standardized way. It might be transparent on chain, but it's not transparent to like the human eye. So there's a huge gap in that. And you know, that's really what we're focused on as a team. I think it's it's still too early to tell in terms of the outlook on the space, it definitely feels grim right now. I've personally been trying not to overreact too much, but there's been a lot of thoughts personally that I've gone through my head of like, okay, how much did we actually just shoot ourselves in the foot? And you got to think that at the bare minimum, these really big players like Paradigm, for example, being rumored to have lost like $500 million in FTX, like it's going to take a long time to repair the confidence that anyone had from the traditional world, investing in these funds and stuff. And we're probably going to be paying that for, for that for a long time. I'm optimistic that there's enough builders in the space that can actually just create things organically. But at the same time, you know, a lot of those builders are driven by incentives to come in. And it definitely feels like we're going to be shaking out a lot of people just kind of like tourists from the true believers for the next several months to years. And then I guess the last thing that I would say is like a silver lining is, you know, we've seen all of this call for like proof of reserves and stuff in the last couple of days. And, you know, that's something that Masari can definitely help with. Like that's exactly the type of business line we want to be in. But I think more importantly, it's it's cool to see that we can use our own technology of crypto um, and open verification to actually Serve the world better in like the legacy world. They can, if we take the time to actually build out all of these reporting processes and stuff and get people to subscribe to actually putting the processes in place, you know, we can create a lot of legitimacy for ourselves. But again, it takes a long time to do that and got to build through the bear now.
0: Yeah. And proof of reserves is something that has just kind of like popped up onto my radar a lot this week. And then I learned that Nick Carter's been banging the proof of reserve drum for a long time. So can you just kind of like Eli 5, what proof of reserves are and how custodial centralized exchanges are planning to use them to increase transparency?
1: I I can attempt to. Kind of like you, I've I've only started hearing people banging the drum more about this in, in recent days. It's actually on my list this weekend to look into like on an architectural level, how does someone like Chainlink do these proof of reserve processes and where are the trust points there at the end of the day, if you're taking in some of like these off-chain, this off-chain data, combining it with on-chain data and stuff, you're ultimately going to have like some sort of trust assumption. But I think just holistically, you know, the the idea is we have these exchanges that are in charge of custodying however much money, like why don't we just provide a holistic overview of all of these funds and kind of have them reported on like a rolling basis and stuff. We're quickly developing the zero knowledge technology, which I'm really optimistic about in this space in the future. You know, you wouldn't even have to necessarily say exactly how much balance you have in like a given area or sector or whatever, but you can prove that like ultimately you meet whatever requirements that like the regulations want you to have and stuff on hand. That's kind of what multi-party computation is about as well. You know, you could extend this to all of the different actors coming together and reporting like a holistic number of like a uh, liquid amount versus a liquid amount at any given time.
0: Cool. And kind of wrapping up, I'm going to ask you a question that I'm just going to preface. This is really hard to always answer, but in 2019, it would have been really hard to say that 2020 is going to be the DeFi year. And in 2020, it would have been really hard to say that 2021 is going to be the NFT year. But taking just kind of the grounds level experience you have researching these various protocols, trends, spaces, and just the group think that you get to tap into at Misari, what do you think is something in 2023 that is going to stand out or kind of be an industry trend in the Web3 blockchain crypto space?
1: Um, (laughs) It would have been funny if you would have asked me this a week ago. (laughs) (laughs) So I think our timelines need to be readjusted a little bit, but let's just set all the stuff that's happened aside from like a tech perspective, the amount of development that's gone into ZK snarks and stuff in the last... I call it 12 to 18 months has been incredible and I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of those projects start coming online for 2023 and you know instead of just being like this whole kind of like nerdy tech idea you know we're going to see actual live implementations of zk stuff for me I'm really excited about the the s in snark of zk snarks which stands for succinct just the whole idea of being able to run some sort of computation And then quickly verify it, pass it on to someone else is is really exciting. And I think that will really revolutionize how we look at things from a design perspective. And then kind of like a trend that I'm watching along with some coworkers is just the idea of like decentralized social and like particularly things like we really like lens protocol. I think there's really interesting opportunities to tie that back into like Aave's lending markets. You basically, like once you have a, Decentralized social system built out over there. You could use that as a form of like an under collateralized lending system based on like social reputations and just different activities that people accrue through like NFTs on the the Lens platform. So it's a really far out there idea right now, just in the nascent stages that the the tech is at right now. But I think over the coming months to years, like that's going to be a really interesting space to watch as well.
0: Cool. Well, Chase, thank you so much for coming to chat about your perspective and Masari, especially during such a crazy week when I'm sure your time is is very limited and quite valuable. So I really appreciate you coming to join the pod. If people want to keep up with you and what's going on at Masari, what's the best way they can follow you and follow Masari?
1: I mean, if you want to follow along with Masari, the best way is to go to www.masari.io sign up for one of our subscriptions, um, get access to cutting edge research and data that we provide. You can also keep up with me personally, just on Twitter. My handle is just Chase ChaseDevins. Got a little blue ape as my avatar. And yeah, same with Masari.
0: Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the Smart Economy podcast and hopefully look forward to chatting with you again in the future.
1: Awesome. Appreciate it, Dylan. Cheers.
0: Well... What did you think of that conversation? I thought it was a bit cathartic to talk about the recent collapse of the FTX custodial exchange and the impacts it will have across the blockchain space. It was also really enlightening to hear about how Masari believes that blockchain offers a censorship-resistant and user-owned future, and that the ethos of decentralization plays a large part in the information that the team chooses to disseminate. And it was really cool to hear about the college-to-company pipeline that Masari is building with the University of Wisconsin, especially on the heels of the Decoding Web 3 tour I just went on. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.